Welcome to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I am your host, Donnie Mae. This is the monthly show focused on building conversations around the team-based model approach to athletic performance, strength and conditioning, sports medicine, sports science, mental health and wellness, and sports nutrition. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. This is the team behind the team podcast, and this is Donnie Mabe. I'm your host, and we have got a special guest today in the studio, all the way from down under in Australia, Mr. Ben Haynes. Uh, I Just a little brief history with Ben. I first met Ben uh, about a little over a year and a half ago when I was in Sydney, Australia, speaking and attending the ASCA conference, and Ben and I had a nice chat there, a good little conversation, and we've just kind of kept in touch, and Ben is in town with his lovely wife, and uh, he's going to be speaking and presenting at our clinic, so we're excited to hear you do that, and uh, Ben currently is the head of physical performance for Beach Volleyball in Volleyball Australia, so without further ado, Ben, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Donnie, I'm doing great. Thank you very much for, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're glad you made it. How's the, how's the travel been for you so far? Has it been all right? Have you adjusted pretty decent so far? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think uh, although it's a long way to travel, the, the time difference wasn't too bad. And working in a number of different sports, I've, I've got to practice my international travel quite a lot. So I'm actually feeling wide awake and, and ready to have a chat. No, I was, uh, yeah, that, that's good. I, I, you look like you're awake, so uh, we, we appreciate you making time. Uh, out of your schedule to come all the way over here to the U.S. and invest in our staff and the coaches here in America. So thank you, Ben. We're glad to have you. Um, I thought we could just uh, start the show off with, you know, being in Australia and just looking at your your resume a little bit. You have done not only not only your PhD, but you've done you've been in some incredible places and got a broad uh, range of experience working with athletes. So could you just introduce yourself to everybody? Maybe give us a little history of like how you got into strength and conditioning and performance and bring us up to current day, how you got to where you're at in the role you're in now. I'd love to. Thanks, Donnie. Uh, so yeah, I've been doing strength and conditioning really since 1999. Uh, I grew up in a, a fairly small town in North Queensland uh, and did university there, studied a Bachelor of Sport and Exercise Science. And whilst I was doing my, my undergrad studies, I obviously was starting to think about where I wanted my career to go and where my particular passion in, in sports science lay. Uh, I did a number of different placements uh, in different organisations and, and different disciplines. I did a, a month of biomechanics at the Australian Institute of Sport. Oh man, that sounds, sounds intense. Amazing opportunity, but was uh, enough to, for me to work out that I probably didn't want to do biomechanics for the rest of my life. Uh, but then I was very lucky when I came back in my final year of university to spend uh, some hours volunteering and observing uh, one of the national basketball teams that was based in Townsville, uh, their strength and conditioning coach. Uh, and for me, that was really where I got bitten by the, the S&C bug. Uh, I did that and I knew from there that this was the, the direction I wanted my career to take. So after finishing my degree... Uh, I guess it's, it's similar in the US. You know, you don't just walk into to high level or even necessarily entry level S and C jobs. Especially back then, there, there wasn't a lot around. So I had to pick up and, and leave Townsville, and I moved to Sydney, uh, a bigger market, to, to try and get my foot in the door in, in strength mm-hmm. and conditioning. Uh, and that was a grind. You know, a, a lot of uh, years of working just in the general fitness industry whilst volunteering at a number of different organisations, but I was uh, eventually lucky enough to get my start uh, as a casual strength and conditioning coach at the New South Wales Institute of Sport. Uh, and from there, that was really, I guess, the, the, the role that kind of kick-started my career. Within about eight months, I'd won a full-time role at the South Australian Sports Institute. Uh, and there, I, I was responsible for a number of different programs. It was a uh, uh, an institute that had 16 sports mm-hmm. that it worked with, and they ranged from developmental to, to elite sport. Uh, and being a, a new coach, I, I worked across a developmental space there, programs like men's and women's soccer. Uh, I also worked with the, the basketball program. Uh, and towards the end of my time, I, I managed to uh, snag a, a role with the, the rowing program, which was actually one of our, our premier programs. So I was there for about a, a year and a half and, and absolutely loved it. It was a, an excellent grounding for my, my S&C mm-hmm. uh, skills. 
Uh, but then uh, in around about uh, January of 2006, uh, I got an opportunity to, to move over towards uh, the Middle East. Uh, and that actually took a, a while to come up, but I didn't m- end up moving there till April 2007. Uh, and that was working uh, at, in Qatar at a sports academy for, for high school aged athletes called Aspire. Uh, and that was an amazing experience. Yeah, I saw that. That's yeah. yeah. You know, obviously there there was the strength and conditioning experience, but the cultural experience as well. Living and working in the Middle East, uh, and living and working especially with sports professionals from around the world. Hmm. I've never been so immersed uh, in a, in different sports cultures in in such a melting pot environment. Uh, you know, we had uh, strength and conditioning coach, sports scientists. Uh, sports uh, head coaches from all around the world, and that for for me was a, an amazing opportunity to learn uh, from a number of different people. Uh, you know, I think one of the things within any country is we we get really conditioned to the way we go about things. So true, yeah. Whether that be in the field of, of sport performance or, or something else, and so to to really be thrust into this this melting pot of mm-hmm. uh, sporting. Uh, preparation from from all around the world was amazing. So yeah, I was lucky enough to to live and work there for around about four and a half years. Uh, and again, I worked with a couple of different sports. Table tennis, uh, strangely enough, for me, which I like it. was I like uh, it. Be quick. in Australia, it was always just kind of a, a back a backyard game that you had after a couple of beers. But you know, I quickly learned that it's a, a serious sport and and how to to best go about preparing athletes for that. Um, but the second, oh, the, the the second half of my career, which was really the the last two years there, was working with their football program or, or soccer program, as it's called here, and, and they're crazy about soccer. So that was a really uh, well uh, sponsored program with a lot of revenue behind it, and and a fun opportunity. Got to travel to some amazing parts of the world for for competition and mm-hmm. and training camps. Uh, and really work with um, uh, what I've really enjoyed as a, an age group to work with kind of that 12 to 18 year old age group um, primarily or solely there really. And then towards uh, 2011 kind of decided it's probably time for the, the family to move on. So we started looking at opportunities back in Australia uh, and I was lucky enough to actually win the, the head of S&C position back at the, the South Australian Sports Institute where I'd had my original full-time position. So we packed up the, the house in the Middle East and moved back there. Uh, and yeah, I uh, was really thrust into it. It was 12 months out from the London Olympics. Uh, the Institute had lost a, a couple of full-time staff members. And so I essentially got all our kind of Olympic or Olympic hopeful athletes kind of thrust at me in that 12-month lead into to London, which was a lot of work and, and a fair amount of pressure there to try and make sure that we uh, didn't undo the good work that had been done in the, the three years to get these athletes to the, so true, yeah. the point that you they were at. Don't mess them up, right? Yeah, exactly. Don't, don't mess them up. Uh, but that was great fun again um, uh, and was, was lucky enough to work across some a range of sports there, rowing, sprint, kayak, uh, track, sprint, cycling, uh, which was great fun, both Olympics and some Paralympic athletes as well. And then towards, uh, well, once London was done uh, and kind of the Institute was was trying to work out what they uh, were doing going forward as far as sport allocation, uh, based at the Sports Institute was actually also the Australian National Beach Volleyball Program. And I knew the, the coaches pretty well. Uh, from from having a couple of conversations and they were in the market for a, an SNC coach and and asked me if I'd be interested in the job, um, in which I was and and the institute were happy to subcontract me out to beach volleyball, so then I was still employed by the sports institute but kind of half of my time was contracted to beach volleyball and so for the entire Rio cycle 2013 through to to Rio was working with the Australian Beach Volleyball Program whilst heading up the the South Australian Sports Institute SNC unit and looking after the, the rowing program. And that was uh, a very, very busy four years looking after t- two major programs there because the rowing program, we had a number of mm-hmm. uh, Olympic athletes as well. Uh, and whilst I was, was doing that as well, I, I somehow found time to do a bit of consultant work to some of the professional sporting teams that were in Adelaide. So that was a bit of work working with uh, the Australian rules football, which I know is is not very big yeah, over here in the United yeah. States. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, so yeah, consulting out to them in their their S and C unit, uh, and then also more recently uh, to the South Australian cricket team as well that plays in the the National League. But yeah, uh, I guess after after Rio, it kind of seemed like a good time for me to to seek another challenge, um, and that's when an opportunity with uh, the state. Um, uh, program for Australian rules football launched a new position to try and help develop the the athletic potential of their their junior players. Mm. So essentially, they're, they're under sixteen, under eighteen talented players that are trying to get drafted into the AFL. So I stepped into that that role as athlete development manager, uh, and really for me it was a, an amazing opportunity. You know, it's not often you get to to walk into an organisation and have a clean slate position where you can, you know, basically build and create what you you see is important. Uh, and I was lucky to work with uh, some great coaches. I had an, an amazing boss that gave me a lot of scope to to kind of craft that. And so, yeah, spent uh, two seasons, which was just over a year and a half, working with the the South Australian under eighteen, mm-hmm. under sixteen players to to try and help them develop and get as many drafted into the AFL as possible. Uh, and then, just recently, the last twelve months, uh, volleyball Australia. Uh, actually found a way to, to lure me back to the sport. So I'm, like I'm kind of back there yeah. again, working with beach volleyball <laughs> for the last 12 months. And, and our focus is on Tokyo. It's, it's approaching rapidly. and Yeah, it's right around the corner. And that's where it's at. Well, thanks for sharing that. I you know, just listened to your story. I had a couple of little questions. Um, you said something about when you first were getting into the, the profession, it was a grind. I know in the U.S., kind of the, the job market is... Just, you know, looking at applications, our market here is very oversaturated. We have more qualified coaches than we actually have positions available. I know being in Australia, that was a common theme I heard other coaches say that it's very hard. Uh, it's even harder, I think, in Australia to get into, get your foot in the door, so to speak, and get a full-time job. Would that be accurate? Yeah, definitely. It's... Uh... You know, it's a, a very rewarding industry, uh, yeah. and, and it's a great industry to work in, but with that comes a, a lot of people that want to work in it. Uh, and so, especially when I was starting out, but it's it, it's still quite challenging. It, you're spot on. There, there's not as many roles as there are people coming out that want to work in them. Yeah. So I'm curious, how did you, what was it that about you, uh, Ben, that stood out that made them want to bring you on board? What do you, I mean, looking back and... What do you think it was? Uh, I think early on, you know, it was just that that attitude to really get out there and give everything a, a try and make myself available for as many things as possible. You know, there seems to be a bit of a, a negative connotation around volunteering your time at the moment. And I'm not saying, you know, you need to go out there and, and work for free because that's that's not what that's about. But the more that, uh, well, I was really able to get out there and network and meet mm-hmm. people and and show my passion and my, my obvious interest for the field. And I think that really, that really helped me out. Yeah. What about, uh, also the other thing I was thinking about you were, when you were to aspire that, that intrigues me. You said you learned a lot there, not only culturally, but talk a little, just maybe just take a second. What did you, what are some things you kind of learned and picked up when you were to aspire? Definitely. You know, Coming through the Australian system, as I'm, I'm sure it'd be the same here in the US, like I said, we really have our way of doing things. Uh, and that can be specific to strength and power development. That can be specific to conditioning models. That can be mm-hmm. specific to agility and footwork. Uh, and so I, you know, entered Aspire with my mindset of how I went about preparing athletes because of my, my education and my experience. But very quickly, I saw that that wasn't the only way of going about it, you know, working with Spanish coaches and how they approach movement and and integrating plyometrics, uh, for lack of a better word, into their kind of movement-based training, uh, working with Brazilians who were really just about the, the flow and the feel of the game and maybe uh, doing their strength work on the field. So I, I really... Um, I guess was challenged on my beliefs of mm-hmm. of whether the way that uh, we did it in Australia was the best way of doing it. And I think that's a really good uh, rigorous system to put your beliefs through, whether you get to do it in in an opportunity like that or not. Because if we only talk to people that we 100% agree with, I think you're not necessarily growing uh, your expertise as, as much as you potentially can. So for me, I picked up a, a few new things in in there, probably more around 
the way I approach my my field based training rather than my my weight room training per se. Uh, but it definitely also consolidated a lot of my ideas. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, I think the way that I've learned it is a is a really solid way. I like the way that we do it, and you know, I'll add, add in some maybe bits and bobs. But the the core of that kind of coaching methodology, I guess, that I learned it was was something I was really happy with. Yeah, that's great. Now that uh, that even sound just hearing how you talked about the that experience seemed like it was pretty pretty profound. And I think that's sometimes where, as coaches, you know, we don't always like to get out of our comfort zone, like you said, and try new things. But I think that that's kind of where growth happens and where, like you said, maybe something you've seen uh, done a thousand ways so many times, you see it in a fresh light that you actually learn something new, grow and change and and become a better coach. And I think that's, I think those experiences are great. Um, I had another question Going kind of from your story of your kind of your timeline, the 16-year-old, the the young young athletes you were developing um, for Australian rugby football, that that really piqued my interest because, and I'll I'll talk talk about why in the collegiate system, you know, on the Olympic side, we're getting a lot of athletes coming out of what we call like a club system in America, where these athletes are. They have their high school sport, but then, in, you know, in the off-season, they're basically training year-round what it is. They're doing the club sport, and there's no downtime. So we're getting athletes that are very, uh, for lack of a better term, they got a high mileage on their body, so to speak. They've been they've played a sport uh, at a higher level, like they've been a professional athlete, but they're amateur athletes, but they haven't been trained in the physical realm as much. Talk about maybe what did you see working with those younger athletes as far as what were some gaps that you saw? What were some things you had to address or maybe build up in those athletes? And what were some challenges? Uh, I, I can really resonate uh, with what you talked about there as far as the disconnect between uh, the athlete's sporting ability and the, mm-hmm. the training that they've done on the field versus their, their athletic development. And it was something that we see and that I, I saw during this time as well. Um, throughout our entire sport network in Australia. Uh, and it makes sense. You know, athletes should get picked for their sport predominantly on their skill ability in that sport. Mm-hmm. But quite often what that means is they've developed those uh, talents, all those skills really, really well, but they haven't necessarily been exposed to the athletic preparation, the athletic development that we know really underpins those athletes to help with longevity of career uh, and performance. And so that was something that very, uh, very clearly was was obvious in Australian rules football and the field that I, uh, the sport that I was working with in, in that time, because uh, like a lot of sports in Australia, not particularly well resourced at the junior level. So they'll have a, a sport head coach that does the technical coaching. They might even have you know two or three technical coaches, but very limited resources on the athletic preparation mm-hmm. side of things. So even at a state level, where these players were were coming into work. Uh, in a state program, which we'd we'd like to think is a a fairly high quality program, a lot of these athletes hadn't even seen the inside of a gym before, let alone you know been shown how to to run correctly or how to change direction and and things like that. So for me, work uh, walking into the sport, like I said, it was a, a clean slate and a, a new opportunity. My real mission in the first kind of year and a half uh, or nearly two years was to try and make sure that I made better movers. I knew I wasn't necessarily going to have a lot of time with the athletes in the weight room to, to try and work on, on strength or power. So I wanted to make sure that these uh, these young men had a, a really good opportunity of at least moving as well as possible to help themselves perform better on the field and, and limit that risk of injury. Mm-hmm. How did you handle athletes that didn't want to train? How did you handle that, Ben? <laughs> uh, look, you know, in that, that particular example of Australian rules football, I was I was blessed. Everyone wanted to be there. Oh, good. It was an amazing age group and a really fun time for me. Uh, and it's because they all knew it, it could lead, lead to something bigger. You know, these, these players, these boys had worked really hard to get into that state academy program, but it was not the end point. The end point was getting a professional career in the AFL. So the job is only half done and, and, you know, they worked really hard with me. I can hand on heart say, however, that's not always been my experience working with adolescent athletes. Uh, and my time in Aspire 
particularly was was quite a challenge, especially early on, because there was a, a big culture gap between what I was used to in Australia, where you kind of you know you work hard and you train hard in your sport and you're going to get better, and that could lead to a, a better way of life. Where a lot of the athletes over there weren't really that interested in sport. You know, they kind of did it because they were at a sport academy, uh, but it wasn't something that really was driving them towards, uh, you know, perhaps better opportunity down the line. Uh, luckily, thankfully, throughout time there, there was a, a number of boys that kind of came along, older boys that uh, started to believe in that message, mm-hmm. I guess. And, and even if it didn't necessarily mean it was going to be a better way of life for them, it was, for us, it was all, all about maximizing what you could do as a person, maximizing your potential. Uh, and if that meant you went on to, to bigger and better things, fantastic. If it didn't, at least you'd, you know, made sure you did the, the most with what you had. Uh, and they bought into that and then they became our biggest culture drivers and, and that's where we started to have some success with the junior athletes coming through. I know, I find it interesting that sometimes when you've got a lot of resources that it can be taken for granted and they don't, you know, kids today don't realize, you know, how many, how many whether it's, um, it's a weight room or a nutritionist, you know, especially in the college system, just how good they really have it. And I, I think you sometimes you see uh, with with uh, whether it's a sport or organization, they don't have the resources. There's a uh, what do you call it? There's a deprivation, and the motivation is a little stronger because they want it and they just don't have as much there. And so it's always interesting to me that sometimes you can give an athlete too much. You know, definitely you can see that in in the U.S. with with entitlement. I know entitlement's been a hot topic here in the U.S. over the past few years with with our athletes and kids and just uh, just trying to teach kids that, man, you gotta you got to earn everything that, that, that's given to you. It's not just going to be handed over. you got to work your tail off. you got to sacrifice and pay the price. And so I'm sure that was a good, good, uh, good experience. Uh, currently, let's talk a little more current now with beach volleyball. Uh, you're the physical preparation, but you also handle sports science. So sports science in here in the U.S. is definitely something that's come on as of late. And that's kind of what this podcast is about, just interviewing and having conversations around the different roles that you're seeing, the new roles popping up in, in performance. One of them is this sports science. A lot of uh, universities call it applied sports science. Talk a little bit about your role. Of, you're the SNC coach. But you also, you do some sports science. You kind of do both. Talk about your multiple hats and kind of how do you make that work in your role? Yeah, and, and look, it's a real legacy, uh, I guess, of what we are talking about earlier of n- not necessarily every sport is well-resourced enough to have one person to, to do all these separate jobs. Uh, and so within in beach volleyball, uh, if we want to do kind of any sports science work or at least integrate it into our program, uh, a lot of that falls on my shoulders now, with that in mind, uh, I don't sit here and claim to be an expert across all of the, the sports science disciplines because it's, it's really wide-ranging, and I'm lucky enough to have access to some, some world-class sports scientists at the South Australian Sports Institute who I can draw upon for specific knowledge. So where I guess my role really sits with that is coordinating between the, the coaches and, and therefore the athletes and the sport ti- sports scientists on what kind of projects we want to run. So, for example, that might be looking at our conditioning uh, and working out whether we need to use uh, heat, uh, external heat, as something to try and mm-hmm. um, maximise our adaptations during training sessions. We're also lucky enough to have an altitude chamber at SASI, uh, sorry, South Australian Sports Institute. Um, and so sometimes we, we look at using that as well, monitoring our athletes' hydration, having our nutritionist on board, all of these different, uh, I guess, sub-branches of sports science where I'm more acting, I guess, almost as a, as a head of sports science and coordinating those projects and using the, the specific experts in their respective disciplines. That's pretty, yeah. Uh, I know here in the U.S., you know, some, some of your bigger schools have more individual roles they can play, but then there's a lot of schools out there you're seeing today, the SNC coach or the nutritionist or the or the athletic trainer here, you guys call it a physio, but athletic trainer maybe is doing, they're wearing those same hats and fulfilling a lot of roles just because the resources, the backing isn't there. And so it's intriguing to me to hear 
you know, that you're kind of doing the, kind of a similar role, even though you've got a great team around you. Thinking about just hearing you talk just now, what has, just in, from your experience so far, what has been some of the key elements of what makes your performance team work really well together? Yeah, I think the, the largest one for that is communication. Mm-hmm. It's all well and good to have amazing experts in, in different disciplines, but if you're sitting in your silos and, and never really talking, then it's not benefiting the one reason we all kind of exist, which is to improve performance in, in the athlete in front of us or the, the team, the greater team. Uh, and so for us, that's a, a large driver. You know, we have what we call an athlete-centered model where the athlete is, is who we're trying to improve performance in. Uh, and if they play in a greater team, then that's obviously going to expand mm-hmm. to include their role within the team. But then um, the coach who is obviously the most connected to, to the athletes uh, has that uh, that closest kind of uh, input. And then the performance team sits around that. And that includes myself as uh, as the strength and conditioning coach and, and the head of physical preparation. But then we also have our, our dietitian, our physiotherapist or, or athletic trainer, as you mentioned, uh, and those those other kind of niche individuals. And if we want to make sure that we're uh, maximizing the performance gains from any of those interventions, it needs to be in an integrated approach. And that's where I really see the opportunity for maybe lower budgeted uh, schools or programs where they don't necessarily have all those individuals is if you've got one person kind of delivering in a, a number of different areas or a variety of areas, you might lose a small amount in the real specific technical knowledge that goes along with the the um, the time having spent work in a specific discipline. But what you gain back from understanding how it integrates uh, a number of different disciplines into overall performance is is priceless, in my opinion. Yeah, I think the um, the the th- thing you I know that we ran into and we see is just how frequently. I mean, what's kind of the what works well for you? How frequently do you guys meet? What forms of communication to use? You talk about the integrated approach. How does that, like on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, kind of what are some, give us a little bit more, kind of look under the hood. What does that look like for you guys a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I guess the the obvious starting point for that is we have a weekly performance team meeting. Uh, we meet every Wednesday at, at lunchtime to sit down as a large group uh, and discuss uh, any kind of relevant or pertinent questions to specific athletes, and we'll go through and discuss each athlete on the on our squad, everything from current injuries to projects that we might be trying to work on, uh, or to performance goals that we're we're trying to reach. Uh, some athletes that could be a very quick conversation if things yeah. are just yeah, well, you know, we're in the middle of a cycle and we're we're taking that off, or others if we're we're working on something a bit heavier, we might spend a bit more time on. But then. You know, I'll be talking, obviously, with my coaches daily. You know, I, I sit in the same office as my sport coaches, so we've got a real clear focus on, on what we're trying to work on each uh, performance block and, and each day within that block, really. Uh, I'll meet with the, the physiotherapist normally a couple of times a week, and if we've got a specific person that might be in a real uh, acute stage rehab, you know, we might talk uh, every day. Yeah. Not necessarily face-to-face. That's where things like email or... We just even used like a, a WhatsApp group to, yeah. to quickly share yeah, like uh, that. information. Good, mm-hmm. good stuff. No, yeah, I think, you know, just to reiterate, you're definitely the communication piece is key. And depending on the topic or the issue, frequency may increase or decrease depending on what, what cycle you're in or depending on the issue at hand. So definitely, definitely something... We've been doing that too. We've been having a lot of within our own different uh, sports and teams having more performance team meetings, which has been very helpful. So glad to hear that that similar approach there. Um, so the other, the other thing I'd love to just touch on here in, in our conversation. So you have a PhD. I probably should call you Dr. Ben. <laughs> the doctor is in. Um, I can only, you know, just from colleagues and friends I know that getting your PhD, I'm assuming was very taxing. And definitely, and uh, heard it almost takes the life out of you. I don't know if that's true or not, but yeah, I feel lucky to be here speaking to you today yeah, after yeah. Uh, surviving a PhD. That's for sure. Well, cool. It's uh, well, I feel honored that we have a doctor in the studio today. So, uh, talk. Just give us a quick little uh, overview of the research you did, and 
maybe some of the highlights of the findings that you got from some of your research? Sure. So I started my PhD um, towards the end of my time at Aspire. And I guess one of the good things about Aspire was our athlete numbers weren't too high. We had a really good coach to athlete ratio. So you had time to think about your craft and why you were doing what you're doing. A part of the challenge that I see in the Australian system, and I don't know what it's like in the US system, is you get so busy delivering S&C services or, or, or whatever you want to call it, similar to that, you don't actually necessarily get time to sit back and think about you know, the why you're delivering it and how you might do it better or a different way of doing it. That's very true, yeah. So, you know, yeah. I, I was really lucky to have that as, at Aspire, to have that time. And uh, a big part for me, kind of as I was uh, going through it, was looking at these training programs that I was writing for the athletes and really wanting to, to gain a better understanding at what was happening, not at, a, I guess, a smaller physiology level, but at that kind of level that really interested me as an S&C coach, which I call the, the neuromuscular performance level. Uh, so, you know, if we're writing a, a strength training program, we know that has some a fit, fatigue that's associated with mm-hmm. it, both uh, acutely and, and perhaps a bit longer than that. So I wanted to try and have a look at neuromuscular tests, common tests that we'd use, like a counter-movement jump, a drop jump, an isometric mid-dive pull, 20-meter sprint, to assess what the impact of such a uh, training session was like, and then to, to track its recovery. And to look at that at different times in the year, because, again, we know that a specific training stimulus is going to affect an athlete based on what they've done previously. So if we've got an athlete walking in for the first session after they've had a break, they're going to react to that session a lot differently four, six, eight weeks down the track when mm-hmm. we've got some quality kind of, uh, lifting under the belt. So that was really, I guess, uh, the premise for me. So I uh, conducted a fairly large study in Aspire looking at that in adolescent athletes, which mm-hmm. was the, the athlete group I was really interested in at the time. Uh, and that spanned across kind of a 17-week period where I looked at their response to a, a fatiguing strength training session. My goal had been to repeat that uh, and look at uh, what the response was to a fatiguing power type of session. However, that was around about the time in 2011 when I decided it was time to move back home to Australia. So I had to kind of uh, tweak and massage my PhD topic a little bit uh, with leaving those adolescent athletes and, and coming back to Australia and not necessarily having the same access to equipment and, and athletes the way that I did. So the second half of my PhD, I looked at a similar thing, kind of using a smaller, more condensed uh, testing battery, and but really focusing around the counter-movement jump, which has become a, a large passion of mine, especially having worked in, in beach volleyball. Uh, and just the things that we can tease out from like a body weight counter movement jump and a, a loaded counter movement jump where we take some additional external load and different things that that might tell mm. us in assessing performance, but also assessing neuromuscular readiness. What were some of the things from the counter movement jump that you guys are looking at? Uh, so look, I, I threw the net really wide when I was uh, investigating yeah. variables. It was a, a, We did our testing on force plates. Okay. Uh, and I think I analyzed over 35 variables. To, have a, to try and tease out what was actually telling me something important to begin, what was a, a reliable and, and valid measure, and then what, was, what made sense from an applied perspective for an SNC coach to look at moving forward. Uh, and some of the simplest things really were the best, you know, depending on how you cue your athlete and the instructions that you give them before they perform their test. Yeah, see, that's what I thought. Cueing is just so different, right? It really can change it. So if yeah. you, you know, cue an athlete to jump as high as possible versus an athlete to, to jump as quickly or as powerful as possible in counter movement, you can greatly skew the outcome in either uh, height or peak power, relative peak power, depending on, on how you cue them. Yeah, and I say that because, I mean, everybody's cues a little differently, I think, and can, it can have an impact on the results. And, and today, you know, in, in the U.S., there's just every other day there's some kind of technology coming out and that's got these broad claims and whatnot. So it's good to hear you say that, that you, uh, you've uh, affirmed what I believe. So uh, thank you. Cool. So not only being a doctor, you're also a presenter. You, 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 you teach courses for the ASCA, and how did you get into that, Ben? So once I moved back from the Middle East back to Australia and, and started uh, work back at the South Australian Sports Institute, 
Uh, I was acutely aware of the ASCA. They'd been how I'd uh, gotten into strength and conditioning, I guess. It was the national body, so mm-hmm. uh, I had to seek accreditation through them. But then that's where I did my, my level one SNC, my level two SNC through. And so I felt you know, a lot of responsibility and a lot of gratitude towards uh, the organisation for uh, getting me so far along my journey. And it was something that I definitely felt like I, I wanted to give back to. So coming back to, to South Australia, uh, I was contacted by the ASCA who said they're on the, the lookout for some presenters uh, to help deliver their courses in Adelaide. Uh, asked if I'd be interested and I jumped up at the opportunity. Uh, and what I've learned very quickly about myself is the, the similarities and the parallels between presenting or, or teaching at a course uh, like that it is so similar to coaching. Because it's all about, uh, you know, in taking knowledge that you have and instilling it into another person, whether that be an athlete or a, a developing SNC coach, and essentially helping them grow in an area that you feel you can add value in their life. Uh, so for me, it was it was almost a no-brainer. I'd love it. You know, I've been doing it now since uh, 2012, I think, was my first mm-hmm. course. Uh, and the last uh, year and a half... Um, I've actually been the, the state coordinator for the ASCA, so I, I coordinate the courses and, and present at some of them in Adelaide when my schedule allows me, and I absolutely love it. For me, it, it's all part of giving back to the organisation uh, and developing, helping to mentor those up-and-coming mm-hmm. SNC coaches that are coming through. Uh, hopefully I try and help them not make the same mistakes that I That's made along the, the key, way. Yeah. Exactly, there was, the key, there was yeah. plenty of those. Uh, and yeah, you know, I, I'm really keen to, to keep on doing that. I love it. I get just as much out of doing that as I do coaching athletes. No, I, I, I definitely, I, uh, share your passion as far as, you know, I've been coaching for a while now and I think one of the most, I, I feel like one of the most rewarding and significant things for me as a coach now is just trying to help younger coaches grow and learn. And, uh, uh, I think you nailed it on the head. Try to take the mistakes and the failures, flops, fumbles we've had and maybe help them navigate some of that, you know. Today, really, I mean, there's so much education, definitely in America, and I'm sure Australia online as well, that, you know, I've noticed coaches today, they got a lot of book knowledge coming up, but they don't have always that practical experience that they need. And so I think that's that's a critical piece. And I'm I'm sure it sounds like your, your presentation, your, your, some of that's got to be hands-on. That'd be accurate. Definitely. Yeah. You, know, you know, for me, and it's a, a message I instill almost in the first half an hour when I present a level one SNC uh, coaching course back in Australia, is it's fantastic to have all the knowledge in the world. But if you can't impart that knowledge to an athlete to help them grow and get better, then it's almost as, as the same as a book sitting on the shelf that hasn't been picked up and read. And so I, I really uh, encourage, challenge even might be a, a stronger, more appropriate word, those coaches that you know, might not necessarily be lucky enough to be uh, able to apply their craft as an SNC coach when they're starting out, but to get out and coach something. Because there's always, you know, an under 10 soccer team that's looking for a, for a coach or whatever your sport of interest may be. And coaching skills, in my, my uh, opinion, are transferable. So if you start learning early, uh, all the skills that, that go along with coaching, all the soft skills, which are, are crucial and Mm-hmm. and critical to, to our success as an SNC coach, then, you know, I think you're going to be a much stronger SNC coach down the line. Yeah, I agree, I agree. Um, let's talk a little bit now, a little bit of kind of I think our heartbeat similar. I love volleyball. I work with the volleyball team here at Texas. And our head coach, Jared Elliott, uh, he's our head coach, and we'll train in the sand some. So we don't have a sand volleyball team, but you work with uh, the volleyball team, and... Uh, I work with volleyball players. What are you guys currently doing? Uh, do do your your athletes lift some? Do I mean, what are you doing to get them ready for Tokyo? What's the schedule look like? A weekly schedule? What kind of current block are you in? Maybe talk a little bit about what do you do to develop your athletes to get them ready for the next stage? Yeah, sure. Uh, so beach volleyball in Australia has has got a fairly strong history and culture of, of physical preparation, which for me was fantastic because I didn't have to, to walk in and try and build that 
Um, they, they wanted to be strong. The Australian beach volleyball game specifically wanted to be a real strength and, and power game and we were going to be stronger and, and fitter and faster than the competition until the last point. That was part of our, our goal. The challenge that we have in beach volleyball is that the international season is so long. You know, games can international games can start in January and run all the way through to November. So with, with that in mind, we have to be very selective and, and very smart about how we go about our physical preparation because you could almost say we're in season for 11 months of the year. Now, with that in mind, within our, our national program, we've got teams at a different levels. You know, mm-hmm. we've got our women's yeah. number one team who are, are vying for a medal at Olympics. We're going there to, to win gold at Tokyo. That's our mission and we don't shy away from that. We were you know, lucky enough to win a bronze at the World Champs last year. Uh, we'd had a world ranking at, at the best uh, in 2019 of number two in the world. So oh, wow, we feel like it's, it's yeah. a realistic goal. Um, but then we've got some what we call probably our developing athletes who, you know, we'd like to qualify for Tokyo. That would be great. But we're also then looking at, at them for really peaking in, in 2024 in, in Paris. So with that in mind, like the, the programs can look quite different. This stage of the year for us, uh, we've just come back after a, a couple of weeks after Christmas, and I really call this kind of my second bite at preseason. So leading into to Christmas, we had, depending on the team and the athlete, somewhere probably between about six to eight weeks of preseason, mm-hmm. which was a really strong focus on conditioning, lifting, uh, on sand conditioning as well to, to work on our metabolic systems, but a, a really big focus on our strength and power because we don't get to, to lift as much during the season as potentially, like we notice, uh, especially yeah, in our female true, athletes, to drop off. The window sh- uh, shrinks. Yeah. Uh, and Tokyo's coming uh, earlier in the year than what our, uh, spe- our normal competition calendar looks like, so we have to kind of uh, squeeze everything in earlier in the year. So when I get back to Australia, we'll probably be finishing off what I'd call the, the tail end of our, our pre-season or our, our preparation period, although already there's been a large shift towards more time on the sand and, and less time in the gym. Uh, and we'll start uh, probably from kind of mid-late Feb moving into our competitive season mm-hmm. where it's really trying to juggle uh, the demands of preparing for competition in the sport with, with maximising any gains in athletic performance that we can get. What's a typical session in the weight room look like for you guys? Is it how long? Like what kind of exercises? Uh, how many days a week? Yeah, so if we're talking pre-season, I mean, I typically have them in there about 60 to 75 minutes. Uh, again, it depends. It changes a little bit depending on how fast the athletes move. Uh, some of them a little bit older, a little bit slower. Uh, yeah. But yeah, we try and aim to, to get them in and out within 75 minutes. Otherwise... Uh, you know, the athletes start switching off and we just don't get the returns on, on what we're looking for. So we'll start off with a, a pretty specific warm-up, which is really just targeted around uh, where I get in any of the in- typical injury prevention work I want to do to look after those hot spots for, for beach volleyball, shoulders, lower back, hips, making sure that they're, they're getting a little bit of love, uh, and but that they're also getting fired up ready for the bigger, bigger lifts that are coming. And then for me, it's a, a real focus on lower body strength and power. You know, we need to be able to jump high. We need to be able to jump high a lot. Uh, and we need to be able to cover eight meters super fast on the sand. And repeat it again and again. Exactly. And for we, how long? How many hours? Uh, well, you know, a match typically won't last much longer than 60 minutes if it's a long match. But we might need to do three in a day. Uh, That's a lot. Uh, uh, yeah, three in a day, you know, eight. Uh, if we make it all the way to the gold medal match, which we, we like to do, then we might play eight in a tournament, which is across three to four days. But the the challenge with that is, you know, we might be playing in in thirty five to forty degrees Celsius temp. So you know, we're talking a hundred Fahrenheit. Yeah. So not only are you running for that that many that long for that many uh, matches, it's very hot. Exactly. And we want to make sure that we're uh, as close to a hundred percent on that last point to win the gold medal match as we were on the first you don't want to drop off yeah. exactly yeah i know beach volleyball i mean it's definitely it's taken off big here in america so it's a sport that's gained a lot of popularity and continues to uh indoor as well so you're, you're working with a great sport um let's talk a little bit here um let's talk a little bit about professional development so i'm curious on this one you have your doctorate 
you 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 worked at all these great places. I mean, do you need to keep learning? I mean, <laughs> what do you do, uh, Ben? What do you do to kind of continue to grow and develop yourself? What are some things you books you read, courses? Is it what what are you up to with with some of that? Yeah, well, for me, you know, it's uh, it might be a bit of a cliche, but I I figure the time I I stop learning or wanting to learn in this profession is time for me to hang up the the coaching boots because you you're probably just about done. But I think, you know, anytime I sit down uh, and get the chance to talk shop or, or watch another coach coach, there's always something that you can learn. You know, there's no two people in the world that go about this exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's I love so about our profession. You know, every time I, I see even a, a new S&C coach who might be learning their craft, I still try and take the opportunity to, to watch how they're going about it. And there might be something that I can pick up that they're doing that mm-hmm. could affect my coaching. Obviously, opportunities, you know, the longer that you've been working in the, the field and the industry probably become less to pick up new things. But like I talked about earlier in the podcast, uh, even something that reinforces the way that you go about something is still a good learning opportunity, in my opinion. Uh, and if you're getting a lot of those and maybe, you know, one or two things that, that start to challenge you on why you're doing things the, the way that you do, if it causes you to do nothing more than go back and review your practices and go, yeah, I think I'm still spot on, or oh, actually maybe I need to, to take a deeper look at that, then that's a, a growth and a learning opportunity. And that can happen anyway. No, I'm, I'm thankful and uh, glad to hear you say that, that that's the one thing I think about um, this profession. This is coming up on my 25th year as a strength coach, and some there's times, Ben, I feel like I'm just getting started because it's changing so rapidly and there's so much out there and so many great individuals that are great at what they do like yourself that you get to meet and learn from and and I think I enjoy not just the the journey but I think the whole process of just mastery I think that's something that that I know uh, is a passion of mine just continue to learn and grow and just finding new ways to get better even if it's just incremental I think that's that's something that kind of like gets me excited um there's a saying I heard years ago, but it's, it goes like this. It's you're either green and growing or you're ripe and rotten. And I know it's a little maybe uh, cliche a little bit, but I think that, you know, that, that you want to be green and keep growing and keep finding ways to stretch yourself and open your mind and learn new new methodologies, meet new people. And I think that's something that keeps the passion alive. It keeps the flame burning for me, and it sounds like it does for you. Um, we're kind of getting close to the end of the show today, and it's it's been a great conversation. As we go out, um, what would be some advice that you would give uh, some younger coaches out there, whether it's uh, overseas or here in America, just getting started? What would be some what would be some key advice you, as they're kind of getting started? Maybe they're discouraged, or it's not as not what they thought it would be, or they're it's just harder than they thought. What would you say to them, Ben? Look, I think that's really apt. And my biggest piece of advice for for coaches that I speak to that are struggling with that is to remember why you got into it. Remember the passion for what you feel for, for what you're doing. Uh, and if that passion's still there and still burning, then then keep plugging away because your chance will come. Uh, you know, we talked that there's not always a, a lot of opportunities out there. But for those people that, that keep showing up and, and really keep working at it, it, like anything in good in life, I think those good things come to, to those people that work at it. So I really encourage any kind of S&C coach that's, you know, perhaps uh, battling with, with feeling like it's not quite happening for them or, or it hasn't happened yet to, to stick with it. But in, uh, coupled with that, I'd say is really try and uh, attach yourself or reach out to someone that you think would be a good mentor. Because you need some support in doing that, you know. It can't. It's not always easy to pick yourself up and, and dust yourself off and, you know, apply for that that next job that that might be out there and, and have your name on it. So that's where I think the importance of having a, a good mentor um, that can really help you work on the areas that you need to try and develop in to, to win those positions, and just just give you that pat on the back occasionally, and let you know that you're doing a good job. So that that would be one large area that I'd I'd look at. And then the second area I'd, I'd try and really challenge any kind of up-and-coming or new S&C coach is to, to not think in black and white in our industry. You know, I think it's probably been one of the, the larger things that's probably had a big, bit of a negative effect on the S&C industry over the, the last 10 years is that we've really uh, had this kind of influx of information and opportunity that you've talked about, which is a marvellous thing. 
but I see a lot of uh, judgment attached to those things in a black and white. It can only be right or it can only be wrong. And we know in working with the human body that that's not always the way. There's a large scale of grey in between. And it's almost something I think that we need to embrace as S&C coaches and go, you know, this is going to work 90% of the time and this is my philosophy that underpins how I'm going to go about my business. But I need to be able to adapt and massage that to the person, the, the yeah. living organism in front of me to make sure that I maximize it and, and get the most out of it. Yeah, so you made me think uh, there's a movie, I don't know, kind of a big movie called Star Wars. I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah, I've heard of that one. <laughs> so I'm a little bit of a junkie on Star Wars, and there's a saying that about the Sith Lords, which are the dark, evil lords in the movie, uh, like Darth Vader was a Sith. And there's a saying that the Jedi have about Sith Lords. I don't know if you've heard it, but they say only Siths think in absolutes. And it kind of goes back to what you say is that if you only think black or white, if there's only one way to do things, then you're kind of missing the mark. And I think that's so true today. The, the more I do this, the more I realize. Because as a young coach, I always thought there was only, this is the right way to do it. Uh, exactly. But I just didn't know I didn't know. I had no idea that I was you know, off a little bit. And so I think as I get older and the more I learn, the, the more I realize, man, there are so many different ways to approach this profession in athletes and to be successful. So, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that with the, with the younger coaches. Um, ben, if anybody wants to connect, reach out after they hear this episode, where can they find more information and connect with you? What would be the best way to do that? Sure. Look, probably the best way to reach me would be uh, through Twitter which is just at Ben underscore Haynes underscore. Unfortunately, Google will probably find other ways of contacting me as well. Uh, you know, the world kind of has connected us all like that, but Twitter's the best place to reach out to me on. Awesome. Well, Ben, it's been a pleasure. And as we go from the show, uh, you being from down under, you got to give us a little give us a little sign off in Australia. I don't know. How would you say goodbye in Australia? What would you say? Well, you know, I'd probably just say a big cheerio to all the, the listeners out there. Thanks for having me on, Donnie. We, we really appreciate it, and uh, we hope to see you down under soon. I know. I loved it over there. It's been an absolute pleasure just having you in the studio today on the show. So thank you for your time, expertise, knowledge, and most importantly, your passion for what you do. I hope that uh, everybody can hear that through the, through the mic. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. And this is Donnie Mabe, the team behind the team podcast. We're signing off. We'll catch you on the next episode. See you then. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Team Behind the Team podcast. For future episodes, go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. We definitely want to keep having great guests on the show and great content. So if you have a moment, please go to iTunes, leave a rating and review, and let us know how we're doing. I'm Donnie Mabe, and thanks so much for tuning in.